Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach to personal finance. This is George Grumbacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, the strong and powerful Brent Nelson. Brent, are you ready to do this? I'm ready, George. Excellent. Let's do this. Brent is an estate planning and tax attorney at Ramon Law. I'm excited to have you on. Brent, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, first of all. Really appreciate it. And, uh, well, in, in your order then, I'll start with personal life. Uh, I physically live in Tucson, Arizona. That's home base for me. Uh, but I grew up in a border town called Yuma, and my wife grew up in an even smaller town in Arizona called Benson, and Tucson's kind of in the middle so that's uh, that's kind of how we ended up in Tucson. But we we like it here. But then I get to practice kind of all over the state and even internationally. So that's kind of fun for me. And then we have uh, we we've been married for 16 years and have four kids. Uh, and I'm 38, so I feel like a freaking old man <laughs> when I when I'm around anybody my own age. But that's you know that's our family. It's kind of kind of wild and crazy most of the time and loud, but. Uh, it certainly keeps us on our toes. And then professionally, as you say, I'm a, I'm a partner in a law firm called Ramon. It's basically a tech company that is a law firm. So it's largely cloud-based, um, at least the system and, the, and all the backup support and stuff is cloud-based. So it really gives all the lawyers the ability to, to work wherever they want and kind of however they want. And the management style is very much like a tech company where you sort of let the quote-unquote talent um, do their thing and be creative and and run their practice. And then the company is there to sort of support that. And so they they do that for me. My practice is kind of private wealth law. I, at least that's how I think of it. It includes estate planning, certainly. It includes dealing with family businesses because a lot of uh, my clients are wealthy individuals and families. And that's what they own oftentimes is a family business. So we're helping them with that and helping them with succession issues with the business. And then there's a lot of charitable planning. Um, thankfully a lot of our clients are quite charitably inclined. And so we're helping them with that. There's a lot of tax planning involved and then sort of layered on top of all of that is an international bend where we're working with Americans who have family or property overseas and the issues that come along with that in the context of kind of international estate planning generally and then international tax laws more specifically. And then the reverse where you have non-Americans who are coming here or they have family here or they're investing here, doing business here. And we're trying to help them navigate the U.S. international tax rules um, with an eye towards kind of broader estate planning and private wealth issues and trying to knit the whole thing together nicely so we don't have any issues on one side of a border versus another and and the whole the whole thing works simultaneously and symbiotically knit the whole thing together so there's no issues on in one one country or the next so everything works together seamlessly and symbiotically that's that's, that's easier said than done i bet it is yeah that, <laughs> that's that's the hope uh, that's where, where we try to get. It's an area where there are a lot of foot faults and the rules are quite complicated. And so 
and and not well known. So it's easy for someone to do something that becomes difficult to unwind in a painless way. So much of that work, not all of it, but much of that work is actually trying to fix issues after the fact in in the least burdensome way possible. Yeah, I certainly appreciate that. I mean, as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about, I mean, people aren't coming to you. Well, hopefully, hopefully people are coming to you or coming to a, a professional um, and they say, okay, here's, here's all the, here's all the parts. Here's everything we've done. Can you help me bring it all together? But how often does that happen versus somebody's coming to you when there's a problem or they just need one thing at a time? I'm just wondering, like, would it be possible to engage with somebody to do everything? And how, 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 how long would that take? Yeah, it's, uh, as far as the breakdown goes, I, I would, I would get, this is totally unscientific. So you just, sure. you call BS on this, but, um, <laughs> I would, I would guess it's probably like two out of 10, uh, come to me before they've done anything at all. And the other eight, have already done something and we're, we're trying to fix or mitigate that piece. But then we're maybe trying to layer on other pre-planning that they haven't done, you know, they haven't done yet that they need. Um, but it can, it can be a long process just depending on what their issue is. Sometimes issues are, they seem very small, but they can have a big effect. So maybe let me give you an example. Yeah. Great. Um, so for, for example, when, when you're trying to figure out whether somebody gets captured by the U S tax system, when they're a non-American, one of the considerations is whether they own property in the U S and they would be subject to the estate tax. Okay. For American people that is residents or citizens, you have an estate tax exemption right now of $11.58 million. So it's really not an issue for 99.99% of the country. That's probably the wrong number, but it's, you know, 99% of the country, it's not really an issue. Um, but for non-Americans, non-residents, non-citizens, the estate tax exemption is $60,000. And it's not indexed for inflation, and it hasn't changed for a very, very long time and nobody is lobbying to change it. So if you're a non-resident of the U.S., non-citizen, and you come here and say you purchase a vacation home in, say, Scottsdale, excuse me, uh, which is a common thing for like Canadians to do. uh, Well, by purchasing that home, if its equity value is more than 60,000, you're subject to a 40% estate tax when you die. Hmm. And so you can plan around it. It's actually, it's quite easy to plan around, but you have to do it up front. And if you haven't done it up front, it's very difficult to avoid the issue unless basically you sell the property, which then exposes you to potential capital gains and income tax in the U S. So there's just like these little footfalls that you wouldn't probably wouldn't think about if you're just coming to the U S Uh, And you're just vacationing here and you might think, hey, it's a great idea to buy real estate. We don't have any restrictions that say foreign people can't buy real estate. It's not illegal. It's perfectly legal. But by doing it, if you didn't know better, you could be putting yourself into kind of estate tax jeopardy. 
Got it. And so it's it's not a complicated thing. You just need to do it on the front end. And what is what is it? The common way to do it is to purchase the property through a foreign corporation. Uh, certain countries, it doesn't work as well for uh, Canada being one of them. But if if the corporate laws of that person's um, domicile or residence is good, then they can set up a foreign corporation somewhere and then they can purchase the property through the foreign corporation. Sometimes they you create a structure for income tax purposes that actually includes a U.S. corporation and then there's a foreign corporation that owns the U.S. corporation. There's some income tax benefits that come from doing that. But the estate tax rules say ownership of stock in a foreign corporation is not ownership of assets that are located in the United States when it comes to a non-resident, non-citizen. And if you don't own assets that are located in the United States for a non-resident, non-citizen, you're not exposed to the U.S. estate tax. So you could own things through this foreign corporation, things being assets located in the United States. And it doesn't really matter what their value is because you only own stock in the corporation. Technically, you don't own the underlying corporate assets. And by owning that corporate stock, you're shielded from the estate tax. There are some, again, there are some income tax considerations. So there might, the, the structure may be a little bit more complicated than that, but that's sort of the general workaround from an estate tax perspective for non-residents, non-citizens. Got it. Fair enough. Well, I think that's that's probably a pretty common example, right? Um, what are some other examples of, of work that you commonly see? Yeah. So now let's say you reverse it. And it's uh, it's a U.S. citizen who is investing overseas. The U.S. tax law says if you're a citizen and you make money anywhere in the world, we tax you on it. And we actually don't care if you live in the United States. If you're a citizen, period, end of story, you have to pay your worldwide income tax in the U.S. Hmm. In addition to that, you have to report essentially all of your foreign dealings to the IRS or to the Department of Treasury every single year. And failure to do that can expose you to very high penalties. So, for example, if you have an interest in a foreign account, foreign bank account, that's more than $10,000 at any moment during the year or in the aggregate, your foreign accounts have a balance that's over $10,000 at any moment during the year, you have to file a foreign bank account report or FBAR. Failure to file that form carries a minimum $10,000 penalty. And if you willfully didn't file the form, the penalty is the greater of $100,000 or 50% of the balance of the account. Jeez. So if you have a lot of these, uh, the penalties can start stacking up really quickly. And there are other forms. That's just one form. There are other forms that are duplicative that you also have to file. And then there are penalizing forms and rules that relate to interests in foreign corporations or foreign mutual funds. And so there's just this litany of things that you have to be filing every year. And if you don't file properly, you get hit with these enormous penalties, at least potentially you could get hit with these enormous penalties and so there are IRS programs to help people who haven't properly filed to kind of become compliant and pay a lesser penalty or uh, avoid criminal prosecution 
that the IRS has opened up. All these all these programs are uh, they're basically voluntary on the part of the IRS, meaning they could shut it down whenever they want. So there's one called the off- Offshore Voluntary Disclosure Program. That one has gone through different phases. It's not quite as useful or helpful now. Um, but the IRS has basically taken the position that, look, we give we gave you guys this out for this long, and so we're going to make the, the, the price of entry into the program harder and harder and harder, assuming that they've weeded out most of the people who would run afoul and need the program already. There's another program called the Streamline Filing Procedures for somebody who wasn't willful in what they were doing. And then there's yet another one that's a delinquent filing procedure where you can file with the IRS late. And if you had reasonable cause for not filing on time, you don't have to pay any penalty at all. So there's uh, a lot of that work is just seeing what happened, what did they own, what did they know, what advice did they get, and then picking the program that's appropriate for them and then helping them through that IRS program so they can become compliant in the U.S. and avoid some really nasty results if they ever get caught. Yeah, I certainly appreciate that. And I, I, I'm confident that, that there's new laws and regulations that are always getting drafted and, and put put on the books. How, how long has, has, has law like this been and I don't know if I'm using the right terms. How, how long have, have laws like these and these penalties been around? Was this somebody way back, way back in the day that saw this coming and they said, you know what, we really need to put guidelines here? Or is this a recent thing? Uh, somewhat recent, I guess, historically speaking, probably in the last, I'd say, 20 years. Um, a lot of these laws have come into being, at least in their current iteration. There have been a lot similar laws relating to kind of cross-border transactions. Um, for quite some time, but the IRS has gotten more and more interested in ferreting out money that's overseas, in particular American money that's overseas. And so they, they've they come up with uh, stricter laws in order to enforce this worldwide income rule and to enforce the information gathering that they're trying to do. Like they're trying to force people who are U.S. residents or citizens just to disclose, let alone pay the tax, but they want them to disclose the information about their foreign dealings so that the IRS knows what's going on. Because the fear was uh, someone taking $10 million, parking it in a Swiss account, never telling the IRS about the $10 million and not paying income tax on it. And then how does the IRS figure out that the account exists, right? So sure. the way you do that is you say, okay, you have to tell us about the account. And by the way, if you don't do it, the penalty is so astronomically high, right. you would absolutely want to tell us. <laughs> and that's basically the policy. You want to tell us about the account, don't you, Brent? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, I totally do. So I remember back in uh, the last election cycle, feels like just yesterday, but it was almost four years ago, which is crazy. A lot of famous folks were saying, you know what, if, if, if Trump wins, I'm, I'm leaving the country. And let's just, let's just assume that, that somebody decided to go through with that. And they said, yeah, okay, I'm out of here. I'm going to XYZ country. How would that actually work from, from a tax perspective? Yeah. So you get categorized into one of two categories. Well, first of all, um, leaving the country is kind of a it depends on your status, how it happens. Like if you're a citizen, you have to renounce your citizenship okay. and essentially give up your passport. Um, if you're a, say, a green card holder, 
then you would have to give up your green card. Um, there's a there's a there's a slight distinction. Sorry, maybe just to take one step back yeah, sure. between doing it as a citizen and then doing it as a green card holder. If you're a green card holder and you've had your green card for uh, the last eight of fifteen years, then there's a then you sort of get lumped in with U.S. citizens. Okay, so if that group of people, the green card holders, who we call long-term permanent residents uh, and citizens, leave the country. And they had a net worth of at least $2 million uh, or they had a net tax liability of, of basically $150,000. It gets indexed for inflation every year. Um, or they didn't properly notify the IRS when they were leaving. Then they're called a covered expatriate. And covered expatriates get hit with a couple of taxes. So first of all, there's an exit tax that says when you leave, you're treated as selling all of your property, your worldwide property. You can exclude roughly $600,000 of gains from those sales. That also is indexed for inflation every year. Um, but beyond that, you got to pay this deemed sale, this deemed capital gain when you leave. Then once you've left, if you ever make a gift or leave by like will or bequest at death property to a U.S. citizen or U.S. resident and the value of that property or gift is more than the annual gift tax exclusion amount, which right now is $15,000, then that U.S. citizen or resident has to pay basically an estate tax, a 40% tax on the receipt of that property from you. It's an inheritance tax. Um, and it's a tax on the recipient. So maybe uh, it's obvious, but when someone is going to do that and I talk with them, then we have the conversation about, well, we don't want you to become a covered expatriate because we don't want you to have to pay the exit tax. And then we also don't want your family members who might be U.S. citizens to have to pay this inheritance tax. And so there are ways that you can plan around the exit tax because the the rules that cause you to become a covered expatriate are fairly mechanical. And so you're trying to plan around those rules so that they don't apply to begin with. Needless to say, whenever I hear somebody say they're leaving the U.S., I say, great. The first thing you're going to do is pick up the phone and call me. Right. Slow down. Before you do it, <laughs> please call me. <laughs> Got it. I think that, that that makes all sense in the world. <clears throat> yes. A little bit of planning can... It's all manageable, but do not just hop on the plane and say sayonara, United States. Got it. Yes, that's right. Well, Brett, Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? Yeah, it's actually somewhat what you just said, George, um, uh, quite intuitively, I'd say, which is <laughs> that, especially in this area, if you, know, if you see, you know, you know of personally, or you kind of see in a client or anybody else, any kind of international, U.S. international transaction being uh, money that's overseas or family members that are overseas or family members coming to the U.S. or money coming into the U.S., just be aware that there are somewhat complicated rules. They're not that well understood and that just a little bit of planning up front can save a lot of pain 
on the back end. And there's some really good planning that can typically be done up front um, that will definitely be worth it and save you or them a lot of headache in the future. Well, that is great stuff. That definitely gets come on. Come on. Like everything else, Brent, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So Very much so, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? Yeah, so they can go to Ramon Law, R-I-M-O-N-L-A-W.com. That's the firm's website. My bio and everything is there. Um, I also have a, a blog and podcast called The Wealth and Law Podcast and The Wealth and Law Blog. It's at wealthandlaw.com. And it's on all of the, uh, you know, every podcast aggregator you could imagine. And then uh, I'm on social at Wealth and Law, uh, all spelled out. Uh, so Instagram, Twitter, uh, we're on Facebook, um, we're on TikTok. Nice. So, yeah, they, they check us out there. Reach out on LinkedIn, Brent Nelson on LinkedIn, and uh, be happy to connect. Love it. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Brent your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Go to uh, Ramon Law, R-I-M-O-N-L-A-W.com. Go to wealthandlaw.com. Check out the podcast, check out the blog, and then follow him on social media as well. I'll list all those in the notes of the show. Thanks again, Brent. You got it. Thanks, George. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight. We are all in this together. I've been asked by so many people over the past couple of years about how do I start a podcast that I've developed and released a course that will teach you exactly how to do that step by step from figuring out the kind of show that you want to have to understanding how all the technology works behind it and then how to get great guests and keep the thing moving and how to grow it. So if you're interested in that, check it out and go to georgegrombacher.com forward slash podcast course and you'll find it there. You can just go to the website. I'll also list that in the notes of the show.